know it's almost the end of January, but welcome to the first episode of the Present Age Podcast of 2022. I'm your host, Parker Malloy. I took a little time off to revamp the format a bit and to focus on the written newsletter over at readthepresentage.com. And I would appreciate it if you went and subscribed to it if you don't already. Each week I post two to three times and for episodes of the podcast like this one, I include relevant links and whatnot in the transcripts. Let's get started. My guest today is Matt Negrin, a senior producer for The Daily Show with Trevor Noah and just about the only person on the planet I know who gets more irritated about the way politics gets covered in the media than I do. Matt, <laughs> thank you so much for joining me. No, I'm obviously happy to um, have a contest with you about who is more angry at the media on a daily basis. <laughs> it's a contest in which we both lose, so yeah, yeah. full in on it. Well, I was thinking about this. Uh, so this is, this is going to be the first episode of my podcast for the new year because I had to take a month off because I was just like, what, why, why am I doing this? Um, I took a month off because I celebrate January 6th um, privately. And so I really just, just a full on month of just remembrance. Yeah. Well, I mean, if Christmas starts in November, January 6th starts in December. Yeah. January 6th creep is a real issue that we need to, you know, people are putting up their January 6th gallows way too early. (laughs) So I feel like the two of us started the Trump years as relatively sane individuals who just yeah. happened to consume a lot of news media. <laughs> what happened to us? <laughs> the question is, uh, how did we become totally crazy while also feeling that we're the only sane people in a world in which everyone else is crazy, right? Yeah, pretty um, much. <laughs> it, to me, it feels like the beginning of the Trump term was like, okay, obviously this is like a, a catastrophe, but maybe, just maybe, our trusted news media will do the right thing and we'll hold this guy accountable. We'll check him. We'll provide a level of accountability that you and I haven't seen in our lifetimes really. And obviously that uh, didn't happen. So I think the ongoing um, frustration with that is what, at least for me, just made me question what is going on with this industry that I was a part of that I used to be I spent almost a decade in how did I not see that this was kind of inevitable and then when I left the industry I was like all right now I feel like I can talk about this stuff freely which is kind of a bad sign that people in journalism can't talk about um, what's really happening and that's been kind of the undertone I think of like journalists will tell you privately in the in the DMs uh, that they agree with what you're saying but will never say it publicly and that's uh, that's bad. On, on that sort of same kind of thought I get a lot of people who will text me or DM me to say they liked something I wrote uh, yep. <laughs> and I'm like cool I would appreciate a retweet and they're like sorry I can't it's just uh, <laughs> I'll get in trouble if I do that I've heard from so many people at like newspapers and uh, like TV like networks who say the same thing and they're like god you're so right like thank you for doing this this really needed to be called out and my response is always like you are totally in a position to call this out yourself and they all say like ah you know I can't do that and no. it's like ha ha yeah we're uh oh, we're, <laughs> well that's fun thanks for your help but uh 
uh, I'm just going to sit back and, and, and let this profile of Greg Gutfeld uh, just kind of just kind of go out and get tweeted about and I won't do anything about it. Yeah, you know, I, I won't criticize it because I don't want to don't want to get yeah. in trouble with with the with the bosses. Exactly. I don't but... want to mention how we gave a platform to Josh Hawley. I don't no. want to be the person who does that. That's uh, it's not my role. Yeah. So speaking of giving a platform to Josh Hawley and <laughs> giving a platform to Ron Johnson and giving a platform to Roger Marshall and Rick Scott and <laughs> and Mike Braun and all of those. Uh, is Chuck Todd your nemesis? And does he know that he's your nemesis? Okay, the word nemesis requires the person to acknowledge your existence. So I think the answer is no. I don't think he has ever once acknowledged any of the, at least explicitly, any of of the uh, good faith, I would say, criticisms about Meet the Press. But I've, I've heard from enough people to know that like uh yeah he's aware of it they're aware of it they're all aware of it and like a couple of like one of the um nbc pr guys uh richard um hoduck or hudak uh has like engaged with me on twitter so has like another producer for meet the press so like yeah they're aware but they do not respond anymore and i think Part of it is because they, they probably know it's like not a good look to be like fighting on Twitter. But also, I think they know that some of these things are indefensible. So you can't defend Chuck Todd for putting Roger Marshall, who is a senator who voted to overturn the election uh, on Meet the Press. You like, can't defend that. It's an obvious um, message that Chuck Todd thinks it's OK to give a platform to people who overturned who tried to overturn the election. And that's simply something that if you're a good faith journalist, you probably don't agree with. So I don't uh, I don't re- I don't relish the idea that there's a guy on TV who is my nemesis. But at the same time, why why aren't more people talking about this? Like, it seems very dystopian. I don't know. What was your feeling after January 6th? I feel like there were a bunch of us on the left who were saying we have to hold these people accountable by not giving them platforms or at least by branding them explicitly every time they're mentioned or on the air with a, a reminder that they did this thing. Right. Do you remember that? Feeling? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I wrote an article for Media Matters in December of 2020. So it was before January 6th. <laughs> I was just like, what they have done is an unacceptable attack on democracy, et cetera, right. et cetera. And, right. and then January 6th happens. And the I mean, shit- speaking of you, well, you brought not sorry to interrupt, but no, if, no, go if, ahead. I, I was going to say, like, you brought up Mike Braun. Like, that's a that's a triggering person for me, because <laughs> I I remember in Dece- I think it was December 6th. I hope I'm right about that. I'm going to Google it real quick because I'm pretty sure I'm right. Like, I've just like ingrained all this stuff into my <laughs> fucking head uh yeah december 6 2020 mike braun was on abc's this week and he put uh floated this conspiracy theory that boxes of ballots were being hidden under a desk in some state and that there was a video showing how the democrats were trying to steal the election so this is a month after the election it's i guess three weeks after biden was declared the winner and you have a sitting senator on abc talking about this conspiracy theory that is at the time the media was feeling out this world right how many senators are going to help trump try to overturn the election what is the line and mike braun was seen as a non-crazy republican by a lot in the media and then he goes on this week and pushes this thing out to me as a producer or as a, a host or as a a person at abc 
that should have been the cutoff line. Like, okay, we're ending this interview. And it just went on for like six minutes. They didn't even talk about the thing they were going to talk. They just talked about voter fraud. And that's millions of people who are seeing that and thinking, what is this video? What is he talking about? Like, maybe there is something to this. Mike Braun is not Josh Hawley. He's not Ted Cruz. And that's kind of the point. They can all be pushing this conspiracy theory or different versions of the conspiracy theory. And the media is going to accept them because they don't have this like, outwardly crazy Marjorie Taylor Greenish stain on them. Mike Braun looks like an honorable person. But if you look at what he really does, he goes on Newsmax and talks about the same thing. So that's why like that that guy is like very triggering for me. Months later, you have Donnie O'Sullivan, who I think is like a, a really sharp reporter at CNN, going to these QAnon rallies, interviewing people who are saying the election was stolen. And they specifically cite the thing Mike Braun talked about. So like, this is how it, misinformation yep. spreads. It spreads on mainstream media. And the fact that these networks keep putting these people on, to me, indicates they either don't know their role in it or they're just totally fine with it. I don't know what another option would be. When I first got hired at Media Matters, one of the first things I did was uh, I, f I flew out to D.C. because we decided to do a thing where I would work in the office one week and then spend a few months working from home and then kind of repeat that. And I flew into D.C. and I saw a guy wearing a shirt that just had a big letter <laughs> Q on it, standing standing on the steps of the Supreme Court with a selfie stick, like taking a picture where he's making real tough guy face. And... It was just him by himself, and it was the first time I, I'd ever seen anyone in person wearing a QAnon kind of thing, and I thought, <laughs> ha ha, that's so funny. Part of the issue is that these views aren't debunked yes. on TV. Instead, what you get is you get, hey, do you think Joe Biden won the election? Right. You know, that's, not, that's not good. Presenting it as a question right. and, is part and of the There are problem. multiple uh, journalists who have done this in GOP primary debates over the past year. Um, there was one in, I think it was uh, Hugh Hewitt who did it um, uh, in the, um, yeah. oh, what race was it? I can't remember, but he was moderating a debate and he said, do you, what is your view on, like, do you believe Joe Biden won the election? Okay, uh, you're a journalist on MSNBC. Like you, uh, yeah, like you, you should not be allowed to do that. There was another uh, local news reporter in New Mexico who was moderating a uh, special house race primary, or I think it was actually the general election. And she said, who do you think won the 2020 election? And like, how do you plan to work on, uh, work with others who disagree with you? Like, don't frame this as an issue. It is not an issue <laughs> or part of the problem with the Q stuff that, what you just said made me think of is like when QAnon first started becoming a topic that the mainstream media had to talk about, they did it really poorly. And I remember like a Q, the Q baby um, at the Trump rally, like that someone held up a baby with a Q on the shirt and the, and Trump pointed at it. Right. And it was like yeah, Q baby. And then that. QAnon went nuts. And then someone was wearing like a Q dress and the letter Q. And so then the media had to be like, all right, let's do QAnon. I remember Lester Holt, the anchor of the NBC nightly news doing a whole thing on like QAnon. What is it? And they just really did not do a good job explaining that. It's like, this is an anti-Semitic rooted in anti-Semitism conspiracy theory uh, that like feeds a lot of um, extremist uh, impulses. It's an online based thing. Like it's all, you know, Ben Collins and um, a, like a, a handful of reporters do really good work on this stuff at these networks. And the rest of the journalists, there just kind of don't, it feels like they don't read it or they don't talk about it. They just kind of say like you and I like, you know, it's like part of the right wing. No, it is so much deeper than that. And it's basically all the people at, at the January 6th insurrection are QAnon believers. Technically, if you wanted to extrapolate a lot of those views, Kevin McCarthy believes like half the shit in QAnon, but 
you would never get reporters saying Kevin McCarthy is a QAnon believer because he hasn't said I'm a QAnon believer, but he does believe that George Soros is in charge right. of like the federal election takeover or whatever. That's a QAnon conspiracy theory. So he is a Q believer and it shouldn't be weird to say that it should be the reality. And part of the problem I think is that these things start online and journalists generally seem to not take things that start online seriously, which sure. is a gigantic yeah. problem because so much of our lives are online. So you you have all these journalists who've been around for 20, 30 <laughs> years or whatever, and things are not the same now as they were then. And so you have these, you know, you have newer journalists, you have people like Ben Collins who are doing great work with a lot of this internet-based stuff at, uh, in the, oh, yeah. Brandy's. Yeah. Yeah. Brandy, I feel like Brandy, yeah. Brandy's a <laughs> Drosny and Ben Collins are kind of like the tag team misinformation reporters at NBC. And and yet sometimes M NBC will do things that touch on those topics that they don't involve right. those two. It feels extremely strange. Just yeah, it feels extremely weird. Mind-blowing. Yeah. And that's why I, I find kind of um, – why I find your approach to the internet generally <laughs> kind of interesting because you're trying to fight in, in misinformation – uh, with with tweets and with I, like <laughs> I haven't done TikToks. them in a I appreciate that I haven't done them in a long time right, I know, you know what, but they're Parker, funny. I'm going to do one today but, or tomorrow just because you have formally requested it I'm taking that as a request yes <laughs> but no they're I mean they're they're good and TikTok is one of those places where it's one of those things where I start to feel way too mm -hmm. old and it's weird kind of aging into something where it's like oh no a social media platform feels like it's too it's too geared towards yeah. young the younger there's kids a, there's a version you know? of tiktok uh, that doesn't have to be that for us like i think tiktok is popular among a uh, generation younger than us because it's so easy to embrace video culture and like phone culture all we have to do is just kind of lean into that it doesn't have to be um like us being like ah we're the old cranks it can just be us being like okay i'm going to uh, just like slightly change the way that I view how to get a message out. There are older people on TikTok who do really, yeah. really well. And I think it's because video just comes natural to them. But it is like the medium is video rather than text. I think that's just the, the big the big difference. Exactly. And that's, I appreciate that you put in the effort to try to find that because I, I do feel like there's sort of a formula to a lot of the way sure. information travels yeah. online. And, you know, with, with TikTok, TikTok is a place where a ton of misinformation mm -hmm. just thrives because it's harder to check. You mm -hmm. can't just do a word search to find something on TikTok. You have to actually find out that some creator on there believes objectively totally. you know, insane stuff and then go, okay, so this person's <laughs> a Q creator. <laughs> so what do we do about it? And I, I don't know what, what the answer to that is uh, other than the fact that most of the time, if you try to bring this up to a lot of the, the, oh, older, yeah. the legacy journalists, they will go, Right, well, right. It's just the internet. And the same, you know, it has the same tone deafness as an article <laughs> that's written about like re people having a reaction to some viral moment, and the headline is like "The internet loves." It's like no, no, no. The internet is a collection of people. Like they're expressing themselves on the internet. The internet is not yeah. a sentient thing. The the I think yeah. the approach to social media <laughs> has to be, and this might sound like very pedantic, but I think that journalists, writers, and kind of like the the conversation havers or the conversation starters um, either rely on social media or use social media to develop their kind of first and second level takes on things. And that's why it's important to 
uh, get in there early and point out that like, okay, this person who like an example from today, like Alyssa Farah, who's spreading misinformation about the vaccines, who is like hired by CNN, which is insane. Uh, let's let's get in there early and point out how she was like a writer for WorldNet Daily, a conspiracy theorist birther website that um, was run by her father. And then she worked for Donald Trump for a year spread, spreading COVID misinformation and now is hired by CNN. Like getting in there early hopefully shapes the way that other people see that story. But a lot of, as you just said, legacy journalists, um, they might be on Twitter, they might be looking at tweets, but they don't really participate in the conversation. And one example of this that I, ju I just remembered um, was in September of uh, of, of 2021, so uh, four, three, four months ago, when Ted Koppel, who is 81 years old, like the most legacy journalist you could have, went to Mayberry, like the, oh, yeah. the fake yeah. town in Andy Griffith. It's like, a you know, Mount Airy in North Carolina, which is like the inspiration for Mayberry. So he goes there to do a trolley tour and talk to Trump voters. And all he did was exactly what you were just saying earlier was like, do you who do you think won the election? And they're like, hmm uh donald trump and he's like interesting like this was a really bad piece of journalism that cbs sunday morning aired as like how quaint this this cool little town oh the people here have some interesting thoughts hey these are people who are radicalized on facebook and fox news they think that QAnon. they think that q is like the leader of a, a, a secret plot these people are psychos and you should not be giving them this platform and ted koppel has no idea what any of that is about no none he's like how how could you believe this as well i mean <laughs> because the internet told me so i mean just just as we're as we're discussing this it was only a couple days ago that joe rogan said was pushing some sort of vaccine misinformation mm -hmm. on his show which is kind of his thing um <laughs> he's really leaned into it like he's, yeah, he's, he's really, really like <laughs> yeah and and someone corrected him and he's like shifting the goalposts to be like well actually uh i read somewhere and that's all that's that's all people i mean need that's all people need these days is just well, I read somewhere that something agreed with me. I mean, I could write something that says, yeah, the vaccine makes you grow a third arm. I don't know. And <laughs> and it's it's not true, but I could put it on the internet. <laughs> yeah. The, 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 way that, the way that this clip, if anyone uh, wants to check this out, I, I feel like if you just, if you go on Twitter and search Joe Rogan, Josh Zepps, Z-E-P-P-S, um, you'll, you'll find this clip, but it was, um, it was Joe Rogan pushing this idea that like young kids uh, can develop um, a complication if they get the vaccine. And then this guest was like, you actually have a higher chance of getting it if you get COVID. Rogan was like, no, that's not true. And then they look it up, which is like the only thing redeemable about this is like, well, at least they looked it up. And then it turns out that Joe Rogan is wrong. What he was saying was false. And then as soon as he realizes he's false, he just questions the nature of journalism. Yeah. He's like, well, how do we know that, we, you know, when we read these things, it's like, where are we getting this information? Like, buddy, you Googled it. Like, you looked yeah. it up. That This is a reflection of how you do your own research and how you are relying on your own, uh, like, preconceived notions of what is true or false based on what you need to say. And because he knows his listeners want to hear the skepticism, the hesitation, the just the falsities, he will lean into it and he'll go back the next day and the day after that and keep pushing it, having not learned a thing because he's not interested in educating people. He's interested in like amassing a following. And that is what you kind of see all across like right wing radio, uh, uh, smaller podcast networks, even these like Fox shows, OAN, Newsmax. It's all people who are 
probably mostly in on it. Like they know what they're saying is bullshit. And if they, they happen to believe it, that's even worse. But I feel like most of them don't. They just know that it's really good for them. Although it's impossible for us to know, like I'm not in Pete Hegseth's head, you know, he might, he might really not wash his hands. He might really think germs don't exist. (laughs) See, see now you're, now you sound like in a New York times reporter circa 2017, (laughs) where you're like, I can't say lie. I can't know what's in his heart. I don't know what's in Donald (laughs) Trump's heart. He might not be lying. He might truly believe, you know, Donald Trump might really believe that Hillary Clinton used the Venezuelan uh, 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 treasury minister's brother to facilitate a deal with uh, with Barack Obama's niece. He, should, he, he might believe that. He might believe that. And we don't know. And so we so have we to call it. Why. We have to call it um, a. a a uh what would they're like an untruth or a uh a a false claim i guess unsupported claim yeah an we will give it one pinocchio (laughs) (laughs) oh man the pinocchio Uh. system i mean if there ever were a metric for how we need to evaluate our world there's i love seeing glenn kessler the washington post pinocchio guy uh give biden four pinocchios like if you gave Trump four Pinocchios on anything, no one else can ever get four Pinocchios. Yeah. There cannot be a comparable way to say Joe Biden also did a bad <laughs> Like, Come on. There is no comparison. Joe Biden, like misstating a, a percentage on COVID uh, cases is nowhere close to Donald Trump being like um, ghosts voted in the 2020 <laughs> election. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Uh, Uh, So in in November, uh, Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy tweeted, Mm -hmm. the only way fascism wins is if the free press covers fascism versus democracy, like just another cats and dogs political fight. I have bad news for him. <laughs> First of all, zero Pinocchios. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> but that's exactly how, how it's been so far. And that's that's what kind of worries me. At the time you quote tweeted that and you wrote, two hours ago, Chuck Todd invited a fascist <laughs> big liar on the top rated Sunday show to state that vaccines don't stop the spread of COVID and didn't offer a chance for a Democrat to respond to anything he said. And I think that kind of sums up where we're at. Like this is... Parker, you giving me like the play-by-play of my own tweets is like any tweeter's dream. Like, <laughs> let's, let's go and back. I got this many likes, and then like, <laughs> oh my god. Okay, yeah, the it's good. This is uh, net positive, I think, for the cause, which is like people in Congress um, have the a bully pulpit. They can go on TV and talk about this stuff. They can tweet stuff. They can give interviews. They can write op-eds. They have an outsized voice um, in the conversation because of the way that our media respects elected officials for better or worse. So it's good that Chris Murphy, that Brian Schatz, that Ted Lieu, that Eric Swalwell, Tim Ryan, all of these kind of like, um, like resistors, you know, like the, the lefties um, are taking up the message for media reform or media awareness, media literacy. I don't really know what to call it. So I like that. Um, I don't think uh, enough of them are doing it to make it as successful as we'd want it to be, but it is good that they're aware of it. And it, uh, to your point, it also is like really unfortunate that the media doesn't really change at all. And uh, it's not, it's not just Chuck Todd. I think Chuck Todd is like one of the, 
prime examples of it because he has the biggest platform on Sunday mornings and that still has a sizable audience and it influences a lot of discussion for at least like 18 hours on social media. But there are others too who who kind of either agree with the worldview or the not the worldview, but agree with the philosophy of like, we can we still need to give these people who deny vaccines are real a platform um, or just like giving Ted Cruz a voice on anything seems crazy to me. But there are a lot of journalists in that world who believe it. That is yeah. that is it's a, it's a, like the cats and dogs thing, like the, the political horse race thing is a separate criticism to me. Yes, politics is covered with this um, frantic like crystal is a nature of like who's up who's down who did who did a good zinger who didn't and like there's a place for that and it's anything before 2015 that that no really long that does really longer apply i think but that is also different than giving a role or sorry giving a, a platform to the people who are like rooting for the end of truth and democracy yeah. so it, it it does go hand in hand like obviously those people who want to cover politics as a horse race also probably think that those people should be given a platform but they are kind of two different issues for me and i i mean one of my unpopular uh among um our cohort opinions is that i do think politics can be covered in a horse race way at times i don't think that's oh, necessarily yeah. bad i think i think polls are interesting and good for the most part um it's when you're polling things like uh critical race theory and then running a headline afterward that's like calling it education instead of what it really is which is just like racism and i think the the sanitization of those really dark elements of the republican party is what happens when you cover things through um a horse race prism in 2020, 2021, 2022. So that kind of needs to change for us to have a more honest media, but uh, obviously like very low chance of that happening. Yeah. Well, there's, um, God, there was something recently. Let me, I'm just going to find mm -hmm. this Harvard Institute. Something, something. So there was a uh, poll that's, that Harvard did. And I'm trying to find... Oh wait, was this the um? I, it was, was something that was like, should you ignore race or should everything be about race? Oh, oh, I don't. Okay, I don't know what that oh, is. Oh, uh, let's see. Can't seem to find it. So, anyway, it's it was a ridiculous poll that was that was done by Mark Penn, who's like a oh. Clinton dude from forever ago. Uh, so they're like, hey, look, even a Democrat did it. It's like, eh. oh man, it's like even Pat Cadell did it. So this is bipartisan. This is yeah. A, uh, so yes, and and give me, uh, the gist, uh, give me the gist of the poll. What was yeah. the yeah? Uh, Mark Penn poll. Let's see. Ah, here it was. Great. Okay, so this poll, um, it was. This was pulled by the Harvard's Center for American Political Studies survey. So, like, how do we even know where we're getting these reports? I'm being Joe Rogan now. Like, what are we doing? We're Googling stuff and just reading it? No, I'm kidding. Go ahead. And here was here was the question. There are only two possible answers. Do you think that do you think the schools should promote the idea that people are victims and oppressors based wow. on their race or should they teach children to ignore race in all decisions to judge people by their character? Wow, that's yeah. amazing. So it's, it was obviously like 70% weighted toward uh the the position of wait a minute, we shouldn't be doing the bad thing. Yeah, well it was 6337 in favor of ignore right. race in all decisions. Just great. 
great. And, wow. the, and the funny thing is, so someone tweeted, this is an actual question from this survey. And Andrew Sullivan uh-huh. uh, responded, and a good one. Oh That's God. what he said. It's just... Well, so no, like, it was not I, a good question. <laughs> the idea of doing like push polls in general is is like kind of slimy, but something on that, the wording of that is so deliberate and so designed just to get like a Fox News headline that it feels, I don't know, like it's gross. Ugh. Yeah, yeah, I hate I hate I hate hearing that. Oh, my God. Some of the words in those things like. What was it like completely ignore? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was should they teach children to ignore race in all decisions <laughs> to judge people by their character? It, the fact that they had to add in all decisions was like isn't isn't huh? Mark Penn isn't Mark Penn like um part of a polling group that's called like third way or something or like some like middling like his whole i could be misrepresenting him i thought he was part of like the third way thing or no labels or something um uh he like, is uh the stagwell purple. group i don't oh, know okay. what that is even but i was gonna say like some of these like some of these fake democrats or like fake centrist people are part of this like idea that there has to be a third option like it doesn't have to be <laughs> democrats or republicans like oh but your question here is two very extreme options right now if only there were a third way or a, a, yeah. a, a more purplish answer to this quagmire so, the funny thing is so this poll the the pie chart they used for it is the red and blue and blue is people are victims based on their race and red uh, is ignoring so it's like it really gets it's out there obvious yeah i remember yeah. in in um 20 i think 14 or 15 um fox news it might have been doug shown doug shane that guy um who did a poll and it was do you think the country is going to hell in a handbasket like that was the question <laughs> Like, or there okay. was the, the Lou Dobbs one that was oh, like, is Trump doing man. great, greater oh, or greatest? Okay. It was basically that old Colbert bit. <laughs> it was, it was, okay, that screenshot to me is the defining uh, screenshot of Trump propaganda. Um, how, how would you rate President Trump's handling of the China virus is what yeah. it said. And it was, it was great. It was like very good, great and superb. <laughs> yeah. Well, and... I think that so so stuff like that it is made not just for the Fox News audience it's made for the internet and oh, that's yeah. why that's why I'm so interested in this this topic generally because the way we talk online people like to be like well no it's not real life it's the internet it's it's not real life what do they think real life is i know you know honestly <laughs> I mean, like but also i'm glad twitter is not real life because real life sucks like twitter is where i want to be you know? <laughs> <laughs> only marginally better than real life which is have also you, bad have you seen real life it's terrible <laughs> but yeah the, the and so the last thing i wanted to ask you about before before i let you go is mm-hmm. so when the new york times got rid of their uh public editor position mm-hmm. they told people to <laughs> oh, no. tweet they they said it was unnecessary because people could just tweet. Right. You know that is the Twitter is the public editor, which that seems like a bad idea. But also, <laughs> there is no group of people less inclined to uh, 
change <laughs> or reflect uh, based on on tweet responses than New York Times reporters, it seems. Um, I, I think the, and, is that, well, I, I should ask you, oh. ask a question. I should let you ask a question. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say, how do you think that was, how do you think that's been going? <laughs> I think the, uh, this is, this is a, um, I've, I have a thought, I have a feeling that like the intention behind that, I think was good. I think the intention being, we want to hear from readers and we acknowledge that social media is where our readers have the fastest and most direct way to let us know what's going on. And a handful of our um, reporters engage with people on social media that can all in an ideal world in which everyone is acting in good faith and willing to acknowledge their own shortfalls or errors that can lead to a much better and transparent reporting process. That I think was the intention. In reality, obviously, um, it means like we pile on the New York Times for like bad headlines and they, I guess we don't know what their real response is, but it feels like they don't uh, change anything in a significant way. But that said, there's no way that like all of these comments can't live in their heads at some level, which is why I do feel like having... um, like rapid response to bad framings or like the, all these diner stories. Like I, I want to think that it's good because it will affect what they do in the future. I don't know if that's true, but there are there part of the reason that I, I am, am skeptical of like how effective um, tweeting at like journalists is, is because a lot of the journalists at the New York Times are really good and they do like really good reporting and exposés. And then some fucking editor will undermine it all with a shitty headline. And people don't understand that reporters don't write headlines, which for the most part is the case. Um, like reporters have very little to do with the headlines as a, I, uh, this is this is my my big brag of the day. I used to be a an intern at the New York Times. I was on the copy desk, and like the copy editors write the headlines, and they work with the reporters on it if they want to. But editors write the headlines, and then a different editor rewrites it, and then a page one editor rewrites that. Like it goes through a whole process. The headline is normally what we're most upset about because that sets the tone for the story, and we are rightfully upset about that. Those editors should be better at that. Well, it's um, also the only thing that most people see. Most exactly. people don't click on stories. There mm-hmm. was, there was, uh, at this point, this thing is so outdated, but it was like a 2010 survey. <laughs> I, I hope that there's a new version coming out at some point, but it was an old survey that was basically like 60% of Americans haven't clicked on a story in the past week. <laughs> so they're getting everything from what they see on tweet, wow. Twitter and what they see headlines as they pass by. Wow. So that's why it's like, you can't just have like a little misleading tweet or a little misleading headline. Yeah, because that's what most people will see. Did you read that story or did you just read the headline that said 60 percent of people (laughs) just read the headline that said 60 (laughs) percent? Sounds good. You know, and the the funny thing is, I remember when it came out, Chris Silliza wrote about it and it was like, (laughs) dude, how do you not do this? How do you not understand? The clickbait master. (laughs) I know. Well, as it relates to headlines, like uh, that is Yes, I think like everyone acknowledges that's a huge issue. And I think that should put more emphasis on the role of editors at newspapers like the New York Times, which, by the way, like there are a lot of headline writers there and it's headline writing is kind of an art at the Times. And that needs to be reevaluated because the, a lot of their headlines have been really bad and we get a lot of the reaction to it. Um 
in this like i think okay so a lot i think a lot of the reaction to those headlines kind of snowballs into this narrative that like the new york times is uh being out of touch being toned up whatever and then it's easy to go after the people on the byline the journalists who are write the story are the only ones with their names on it and the editors aren't that i think is not always fair that said, if Peter Baker writes a stupid story, like and is quoting people stupidly and is making bad analysis about how how January 6th is just a red versus blue reality thing, like sure, like he's wrong for doing that. But I think a lot of the times when we're going after headlines, uh, it, it's good to know, it's important to know that the reporters aren't the ones who write the headlines. And like, this is such a weird thing to like, try to educate people about because it's not intuitive. You would never think that that's the case, especially because yeah. in a lot of new media websites or digital publications, reporters do write the headlines. Um, and mm -hmm. they, they often like, they often write it at, tying into the story, which is fine. Like that's a good way to write for a digital audience. Um, but it's not always the case at these like legacy papers that we focus on because they do have like a huge circulation. Um, I'm also thinking right now of like the Buzzfeed, like old, like the cliche Buzzfeed writer who's like, okay, I have to do a story on like the 43 greatest kangaroo gifs. <laughs> and then like the editor's like, how about we do the 43 great kangaroo gifs? And the, and the writer's like, that's not the headline I want. <laughs> that will restore your faith in humanity. Yeah. Like that I would was never say that. I would never say that. Oh, <laughs> uh. And so, yeah, Matt, is there anything else that I haven't asked that you want to mention or any projects you're working on or anything? Oh, man, you cover anything so much. Anything at all. The, um, the floor is yours. I, I do. I, ha I have a like perfunctory plug for this uh, thing we did at the at the Daily Show where we put up these January 6th monuments. Um, if anyone wants to check this out, just go online and, and use the hashtag Daily Show Monuments. But it's basically like a tribute to our um, wonderful freedom insurrection heroes who tried to overthrow the government on January 6th. And we just felt that we needed to honor them um, kind of the way that like civil war generals are honored in the South. So we put up some monuments to them. Uh, I would encourage everyone to just educate yourselves about our history and our heritage um, before the woke right wing mob uh, tries to tear them down. <laughs> See what, what we need to do though, if you really want to be like the, the way that civil war monuments are celebrated in the South, we should wait like 70 years and then put the monuments up. <laughs> Just aggressively too. Okay. This know? is like a really, a really crazy thought is like in 70 years, what will Parker, you and I will have to do a podcast in 70 years and see like, are, do people even know what January 6th is? God, I point? hope I'm dead. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I'm dead in seven years. <laughs> yeah, seven, 70, whatever. It's all yeah. the same. <laughs> but Matt, thank you so much. It's been it's been a lot of fun talking to you. This is the least angry I've been in so long. So it was I know. Really so now it's like I'm going to close this and and go look at Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I'm let's sure go things get, will be fine. We'll go get angry together online. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> Thanks, right. Parker. That's today's episode. Thanks a lot to Matt Negrin for stopping by. It was great to uh, great to chat with him. As always, you can find a complete transcript of today's episode over at readthepresentage.com.